Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com. It's the Cleveland Browns and the Pittsburgh Steelers on Sunday. Big game. Doug Marie, Scott Pascoe, Ellis Williams here to get you ready and learn you up about Browns football. That's how you say that, right? Uh, so I'm just going to sit back and relax. Scott and Ellis are going to say smart stuff about the Browns. Fascinating game. I think it's quite possible that the Browns have a rough Sunday and they're fine long-term, but if they have a good Sunday against Pittsburgh in this moment, like I don't even know what people in Cleveland are going to do. They're already four and one. If they come out of this five and one with the win over the undefeated Steelers, I don't can, do people have mid season parades? Is that a thing? I don't know what the etiquette is on, having like a five and one parade through the middle of a city. Uh, But Scott in the second half of this podcast, where we break down two big issues on the Cleveland Browns is going to get into this Steelers pass rush. And especially what these Browns, these two new Browns tackles might do to try to stop it. But first Ellis Williams is going to dive in on Baker Mayfield, who had a very interesting game last week and what it might mean for this week. Ellis Williams dive in on got to watch the tape. Here we go. And there's a lot to unpack. Like Doug said, we're first going to talk about Baker Mayfield's overall performance from Sunday and then try and get an understanding of what that may mean going forward. And specifically this Sunday versus the Pittsburgh Steelers. Baker played two completely different halves and trying to then push that forward into what it will mean for Sunday is ultimately the goal here. But to get to Sunday, we first have to look back at last week. So after the game, Baker said he thought he played his worst game yet. And I thought he was hard on himself initially. But when you go back and watch the tape, he really should have just said he played the worst second half of perhaps his career. But focusing on the first half first, I, there's two really important stats I want you guys to come away with here. First, Baker's second in the NFL in passing yards outside the pocket with 228. He trails only Lamar Jackson there. I've often, com- I've often compared those twos. I have said to myself again and again and again, Baker Mayfield is Lamar Jackson light, baby. Right? Yep. Is that right? Just right yep. I'm kidding. And, and I just gave you the stat to prove it. So now, Doug, you can go on in, on your Buckeye talk and tell everyone you were right about Lamar and <laughs> Baker comp there. You that's where, that's, that's where that, that takes you to go. Anyway, yeah. anyway, anyway. <laughs> so both these quarterbacks are getting their – they're doing a lot of their damage outside the pocket. 23% – of Baker's passing yards then are coming outside the pocket and he he's money from out there. But what was so impressive about the first half versus the Colts was he was also money from inside the pocket. 
So from inside the pocket in the first half, Baker was 14 of 21 for 147 yards and a touchdown. That, that's an impressive stat line. Why were those things working? Well, from the pocket, first he just had some, some clean looks, some, some easy releases, you know, cream hunt in the flats, uh, a slant to Oda Beckham for seven yards, those type of quick hitting plays that I think, I think the Pittsburgh offense is going to do a lot of them Sunday, but that's a different conversation. Some of those quicker hitting plays that get Baker, you know, in a rhythm and moving. But he was also getting chunk plays downfield, which is what this offense has lacked. And that was because of a few things. The Colts were playing a lot of zone coverage. Uh, there was a a deep curl from Odell Beckham in the second quarter. He also hit Austin Hooper on a deep curl right in the middle of the field on the third and 11. Uh, Towards the end of the first half, he found Rashard Higgins on a deep out. And earlier in that second quarter, he got Higgins on a second down vertical seam route, that 15-yard touchdown, which was really just sloppy cover four defense from the Colts. So Baker was a marksman inside the pocket. And then, as he's been all year, he was even better outside the pocket in the first half. Outside the pocket, he went five for seven for 81 yards and a touchdown. Now, a few of those chunk plays, uh, you remember the first drive, the, the boot left throwback to Jarvis Landry, the one he, I believe he was shook, shaking up on that play. Um, and then he had another one. He came back to Jarvis booting left, but this time Jarvis booted left with him. And that was the one where Jarvis caught it behind the guy's helmet and just a freak circus catch. And we're going to get to Odell's catch here in a second, but that Jarvis catch was stupid. Can I just stop there and just – I don't think anyone's really given Jarvis his due on that catch. I mean, that if the linebacker turns around, it's an interception, but he caught it right in the ear hole of his, of his pad. I mean, have you guys – when you see that catch, I know it's not to go up and make a crazy one like Odell, but the professionalism and the, the hand-eye coordination to make that catch is, is one of the better ones I've seen in a long time. Jarvis had a really interesting game. I mean, I thought that was like Jarvis got nailed and like toughed it out. Jarvis, as you said, caught a ball on a guy's nameplate. Um, <laughs> that was like, again, there's been a lot of the interesting back and forth. And I will admit that I early on was more on the, man, this guy's making a lot of money kind of for what he is. He's kind of a volume receiver. You know, he got a million balls in Miami. Why did John Dorsey make this deal and bring him in? But like, as I think over time, I think almost all Browns fans have come around the idea of like Jarvis Landry is clearly one of these guys who's more than his stats in what he does for the team. But then, man, that guy just like, that guy is relentless sometimes. And when he's feeling it and feeling good, he, he's relentless physically. He's relentless mentally. He just gets after it. And I thought those two things are like the opposite ends of the spectrum of like, he got cracked, he crawled off the field and then came back. And then he just makes a catch on a guy's back. That's unbelievable. I, it is a good little pause, Ellis, to give Jarvis credit. Scott, I don't know. Have, what's, has your thinking on Jarvis Landry evolved over time? And I know this is a Baker conversation or when you see Jarvis do things like this in the game, what do you think? No, I, it, to me at this point, it's normal. I think we, I came into this season thinking that he was going to be the receiver who, maybe we talked about more, you know, uh, than, than Odell. I thought that maybe he ends up being the quote unquote number one guy in this offense, just the way this is versatility and the way he's been used and the fact that he does so well on the slide and all that. But yeah, I mean, those kind of catches, it, that's Jarvis Landry. And that makes his drop. So eye opening, like in that game, like how do you, how do you grab a ball off someone, you know, uh, on the other side of someone's helmet like that. And then you, you drop a, a pass that Baker basically lost you from what, 10 yards away. And it was just surprising. But I guess yeah. when you're that good, something like that just stands out so much. Yeah. And we're going to get to Jarvis's drops, but I, I just thought he deserved a, a moment there um, because that, 
reception like when he catches off the nameplate in the ear hole, that's going to go down as one 17 yard catch in, in history. But man, that, that is so much more than one 17 yard catch. That is a heck of a catch, heck of a bailout. And then again, as we're talking about Baker Mayfield here, um, he hit Odell Beckham Jr. Speaking of spectacular catches for that 26 yard deep ball that somehow Odell holds on to. He kind of throws into like a two and a half triple coverage type of area there. And again, that's why, you know, Baker at least knows the, what is asked of him. He's throwing to a spot there, but you get worried as in he's not seeing who may be around that spot, but that's the spot where the ball needs to go. And Odell does what Odell does. So, uh, so that, I, I just want to interrupt you real quick. And I know you're getting to this Ellis, but you sort of mentioned this. You, did you think he, he played well in the first half? His, his explanation of, I thought, because I thought it was weird when he said it, that was right. well, the worst of my five games. I was like, am I, what did I watch in the first half then? Because as you just de- detailed again, I thought he was pretty good in the first half. Yeah. Yeah. So that's exactly what I, I'm going to get to because I think he just was a, being more prisoner of the moment of his second half. And we're going to unpack that in a little bit there, but just to stay on his first half here for a second. Uh, and I know we talked about it a bit in the post game pod as we do most of these topics, but that first half of Baker Mayfield, Doug, you kind of already shared Scott. I'm curious. I mean, was your, you, you go into halftime and you're thinking, wow, is Baker about to throw for 400. Did you um, anticipate a, a, a regression? W- what was your first half? Uh, view on Baker's performance? Uh, well, first off, I looked at the stats and I thought that those were the kind of numbers you have at the end of a game in Stefanski's offense. Right. But he did it all in the first half. And then I, I thought, well, we've been talking about how at some point Baker Mayfield's going to, quote unquote, have to win the game. You know, the running game isn't going to work. And in the first half, it really wasn't. So it seemed like we were headed towards a game where, yeah, Baker Mayfield was going to have big numbers. And if the Browns are going to win, that was probably going to be a huge reason why. Um, but as we saw in the second half, Things really didn't keep going uh, that way. But that's what I thought, um, that, that this was going to be the game. This is the Baker Mayfield game, and we were in the middle of it. And the thing I think is important is why I think this breakdown at this point, Ellis, is valuable for a lot of listeners and Browns fans out there is because I thought he carried them in the first half at a time when the Colts were stopping the run game both with what the Colts were deciding to do defensively and the fact that Nick Chubb was out and then Wyatt Teller got hurt. So then, Hey, if the bread, the, the Colts are going to stop this, you've got to throw or you're dead. And they did. And like, yes, that worked. And then if the success of that causes a defense to change and now it opens up something else, then, okay, this is how all this works together. If it's just that like Baker then just sucked in the second half for no reason, then it's a different situation to me. And that's what I want to hear you. That's why I'm excited for you when this second half breakdown, I don't know that I automatically thought, okay, well, he's thrown for 200 in the first half. He's going to throw for 400. Cause I, maybe I thought, well, they'll just adjust back to that, but it'll opening open something else up. But I thought if he had not played, I, I mean, if he had not played well in the first half, if he had just, if they ran all the same routes and he just missed dudes, if they ran all the same routes and he wouldn't let himself throw it and he was bailing out of pockets and scrambling when he didn't have to scramble, they would have lost. But he did his job very well in the first half and it gave them the chance to win in the second half, even though he was bad in the second half. So go ahead. Yeah, no, that you lay that out well, Doug. And that's to end the first half conversation, I want to, Put it this way. Baker took advantage and was money on his bootlegs, which he's been all season. Zone coverage. He knows where to find the soft spots in the zone. He has guys like Richard Higgins, Odell Beckham Jr., and Austin Hooper who are, are masters of that. And then, again, both 
the zone coverage inside and also outside, he's able to hit some deep outs. So Baker played a complete game in the first half because of he was calm and he wasn't feeling frantic by press coverage and more guys in his face. He knew where to go with the football. All right, but now time for the second half, right? So here are Baker's second half stats inside the pocket. He's two for five for 19 yards and two interceptions. Outside the pocket, 0 for 4, 0 yards. Jarvis did have two drops on those outside-the-pocket throws. So potentially, you know, we're looking at – and that's what's tough about that outside-the-pocket stat because really it's less about the bootlegs and more about Jarvis just not continuing to drive. You know, those both probably would have gone for first downs, and now we're – you know, you're giving Baker more opportunities to perhaps make these second-half numbers look a little better. But when a drive ends, a drive ends. And, it's, it, and the Browns – really were playing a similar offense as the Colts were an offense that couldn't get anything going either. You know, if they were facing a, a Cowboys offense and their defense is, their offense is stalling like the Browns was and the Colts offense could have kept going. Well, this is probably a different ball game, but both offenses were stalling out. They got sloppy, but here. And I would, I'll just interject and say, this is yeah. how it works. Jarvis caught a ball behind a guy's back and Odell caught a ball with his elbow on the ground in the first half that probably shouldn't have been completions. And then Jarvis drops two in the second half that should have been completions, but you know, sometimes receivers bail quarterbacks out and sometimes they let them down and usually it all works out. Yep. 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 The thing though, that is two things that are concerning when I watch Baker in the second half, the first one is his presence in the pocket. There were times where he got, and he reverted back to last year, Baker, real yippy, real jumpy, and not as disciplined with his feet. And I think the throw that it was most apparent on, and it was actually, it was actually, he mentioned how poorly he played at the end of the first half also. So I guess I'm kind of curbing the argument here, but if you wanted to, if you were to ask Baker, when did you, when did your poor play start? He would say the last half in the second quarter before halftime, and then the whole second half he had a ball to uh, Harrison Bryant down the seam, just a, just a vertical route that uh, Xavier Rhodes almost intercepted, but it just, he wasn't ready for it. He dropped it. That if you watch that from the, the tight goal line view, man, Baker's feet are choppy and he, and he looks antsy. He looks unsure of, I don't want to say he can't see, but again, I don't, I just cannot understand where that bounce is coming from. And when he gets to yip in like that, that's when the, the high balls come. And that is what cost him both almost cost him on that Bryant throw. And then it did end up coming back to bite him on the Austin Hooper throw, just another high ball. So two things that changed for Baker outside of what the Colts did, because we can get into what the Colts did here in a second. Cause I think that's going to translate into what he's going to see on Sunday versus Pittsburgh, but just with the things Baker can control, he got undisciplined with his feet. He got jumpy. He got just antsy back there for whatever reason. And then two, he, he lacked discipline in taking what the defense gives him. There were chances where he could have hit Janovich, the fullback in the flats for a four yard pickup. And perhaps he gained some more, but instead he chose Austin Hooper on that. I think that was a fourth quarter ball um, on the right sideline. The one that just sailed over hoops arms, you know, he dove for it and he almost had it and it didn't, it didn't work out that play. You just toss it off to your fullback in the flats. That goes for six, seven, eight yards. You're moving the chains and you're playing another down instead of leading to that interception. So just to wrap that up, the lack of discipline in his feet, the yips, 
and then just not taking what the defense will give you and instead trying to drive the ball downfield when you shouldn't. That was unlike the Baker Mayfield of the first half, and those were two things I didn't like that had nothing to do with the Colts' defense. I, obviously, everybody hates it when on third and nine, a quarterback takes a check down for a four-yard gain, right? But I do feel like there are times, and there's at least one or two in this Colts game and maybe in earlier games, when it feels like there are some check downs there for Baker on first and second down that he doesn't take. And I don't know... He'll, he'll like, you know, Kareem Hunt will be standing five yards in front of him with nobody around him and Baker's looking downfield, looking downfield, and then will escape the pocket and like end up throwing it away. And it's like, dude, you could have gotten five free yards there. Ellis, you're shaking your head. You see that Scott, is that, do you also feel like you, you see that at times with Baker? Yeah, I saw that a lot in week one when the Browns were, I guess, not using play action as much, but you had a lot of a lot of empty backfield and Baker kind of trying to figure out where he wanted to go. Um, we saw him pass up uh, even uh, one of those passes on, I think the one rollout he did in that game. So yeah, I think the one thing I think you, that really hurt him last year. And I think the sack numbers bore this out. He, he ended up causing like Hubbard had the most pressures allowed on the Browns last year and Baker by himself was, was second. So he ran himself into a lot of trouble. And I think, the fact that they've been able to win four games and he hasn't, you know, played perfectly, you know, uh, and that he's had these kind of issues, especially this last week uh, in the second half, I think is somehow a positive for this team. But the key then is just keeping it to this one half and not making it something where it continually happens because this week they're again going to face a team that can do everything the Colts did. And, you know, you don't want Baker having those issues again. So the thing that I will say, and this is part of a larger Baker conversation, and I don't, I don't want to throw you off what you're talking about here, Ellis, but the thing to me with Baker is I'm always okay. I mean, I, I think a lot of times we talk about sacks and interceptions and checkdowns and big plays as separate things when actually it's all of them connected. And if you – and completion percentage, that kind of thing. And it's like, well – you know, if you're taking a couple sacks because you're trying to hang in to make a big play, if you're throwing a couple interceptions because you're trying to give your guys a chance to make a big play, if you're not taking check downs because you're really looking to make a big play, and the result is you kind of have a lot of sacks, which really is more of a QB stat than an offensive line stat. You kind of have a lot of interceptions. You don't check it down enough, but man you are blowing defenses up with the big plays that you make that I'm okay with all that other kind of negative stuff. To me, the thing that is the issue with Baker at the moment is I don't really think the sacks or the lack of checkdowns or the interceptions are really the problem. I just think there need to be more big plays on the top end that make all those worth it. And it's not, to me, it's more the lack of big plays then, hey, he should reduce these other things. I'm kind of waiting for – because I think he – you know, again, it's an inexact dumb guy comparison, but it's like Brett Favre made a bunch of freaking mistakes, and then he did a bunch of crazy things that won his team games. And that's where I think Baker's fallen short a little bit, that I'm okay with some of the mistakes. I just wish there was more boom to make up for some of the busts. But anyway, that's just me. No, but I, I, I'll piggyback off that because now you're getting into an offensive philosophy conversation, which I really like. And it, it sounds like Coach Leighton Maurice would love to have Brett Favre under center, but I don't think you'd be a huge Baker Mayfield guy. But I'll tell you who is a Baker Mayfield guy right now, and that's his current head coach, Kevin Stefanski. Kevin Stefanski doesn't want what Brett Favre was doing. I mean, look, if you could have a legend quarterback and tailor him to your offense, that's, that's one thing. But the, what Kevin Stefanski cannot stand – 
is, of course, turnovers. I mean, you ask him anytime there's interception, there's not one he'll take. And then I thought there was such a good takeaway on, I, I wrote it about it, the Browns' final drive there and how the importance of keeping the clock running. This, this, is, this is not an offense about kill shots. It's an offense about reducing the probability that you'll lose. And, 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 that's, and I don't want to get into that coach speak where it's like, well, you played to not lose. You got to play to win. No, no, no. I think, I think the best football coaches play to re- reduce their chances of losing and really just let the other team make mistakes if they're going to make them. I mean, I think Kevin Stefanski a few times would have been fine punting down to the eight yard line again and letting Phillip Rivers go up against Miles Garrett. If, if the other team's going to make mistakes, just eliminate yours. And that's why the Baker thing is an issue right now in Kevin Stefanski's offense, because like you said, Doug, if the big plays were there, then it's like, it's like, it's those, no, no, no. Yeah. Those throws Baker's not quite making those. So, but now I, I can't let Kevin's fancy off the hook completely here either for Baker's second half, because two things, the adjustments that the Colts made that I want to talk about that Baker really, there's not much Baker could have done without an adjustment himself is they came out and they started playing a lot more man defense and, and, and a press man too. There was a play where I think it was a third down and he had Odell isolated to his right in the, third quarter I believe and they just ran a hitch route you know it's a five-yard hitch route and the corner on Beckham which I believe was Rhodes was on Beckham the whole time and the ball just kind of sailed out of bounds I don't know if it really even hit Baker's hands but that play had no chance anyway even if Odell catches that ball that ball's going for a three-yard gain that's a pass you make versus off coverage pre-snap determined and you give your guy an opportunity to make a play after the catch so both the Browns receivers need to do a better job of getting open they're not going to get open 100% of the time but when now, here's where the big plays come in. I would have liked Kevin Stefanski, and I wouldn't be surprised if he dials up versus the Steelers some double moves on the outside for these receivers. Because when you are, have corners that are saying, all right, we're just going to be in your face, we're going to beat you, we're not going to let these zone hits keep working, Baker, we've got to start sending you deep on some double moves. So, Doug, I think the deep shots out, without play action are coming, but regardless, I'm saying I would expect some double moves now to the point of needing more explosive plays downfield because this short game stuff – I think defenses are going to start taking that away. So the main thing is the Colts went from a lot of zone in the first half that Baker picked apart to a lot of man in the second half that he had trouble with. And your expectation. So here's, here's my interpretation of this. It feels like there are times when Baker has trouble with hitting a guy like exactly coming out of a break or a guy. It's like, man, you just were off by a stride there or whatever. When he's going against a zone and like, there are times when it's like Odell runs a route and like settles in a zone and is sort of standing there between three guys and Baker will rip it. And then it's like, okay, now you're man to man. And if your timing's off by half a second, now you're running a curl or a hitch. And, and now the, the one-on-one DB might jump the route if you don't throw it on time. And then I feel like the other thing that Baker is this, the other thing that gets Baker in a zone, he kind of is aware of what everybody's doing. Sometimes in man to man, he sees the single man coverage and then he does not see the help. He does not see the linebacker underneath. He does not see the safety coming across. He does not anticipate a lineman dropping into coverage. And it's that second guy helping in man that messes him up a lot. And maybe that messes up a lot of quarterbacks. What you're saying and what my layman I see, I don't know that I would ever play zone against Baker Mayfield. Because if you are scared, if you're saying Ellis, then, well, then, okay, that's man up. But then that's, okay, now, now Odell might run by you on a double move. Is Baker hitting those? Right. Exactly. And that's I mean, what I'm saying. These defense are going to have Baker step up to the challenge because not only is it the man coverage, Doug, but watching that Eagles Pittsburgh game, the 
Pittsburgh's not scared to blitz, even with edge rushers like Bud Dupree and TJ Watt. There, there were times uh, Carson Wentz threw a zero coverage touchdown to his slot receiver, just running a little corner. And he just threw that up in the air and let his guy run under it. And he took a lick for it. And we're going to get into some QB hits too here, but that's what, what I'm saying. We've seen more. It's a great point by you, Doug, because we've seen more times Baker overthrowing Odell than that ball landing right in Odell's chest with, uh, you know, a step and a half. And I, I think that's going to be the game plan now. And if that's, one, if that's what happens on Sunday, all of a sudden they do that and Baker hits some of those. That not just maybe wins them the game Sunday. It maybe changes how everybody plays them going forward. Scott, go exactly. ahead. I was, I the one time that worked was against the Bengals on the, on the touchdown to, uh, to Odell. And it, was a, it was a good rollout, and I believe that was a double move. And, uh, yeah, he was, he was wide open and it all worked. But, yeah, we've seen plenty of those passes where Odell's running and he just kind of lets out his arm at the very end just maybe to show everybody how far away this pass was from him actually catching it. It's something Baker needs to improve, obviously. Yeah, so, uh, Scott, I'm really glad you brought up that bootleg play because that's the last point here I want to get to about the, the Colts defense and the adjustments they made. I mean, everyone saw it. It was obvious that the bootlegs that were working in the first half were non-existent in the second half. A few reasons for that. We mentioned one of Jarvis's drops. All right, fine. But that's still just one play. And when you think about the Bengals uh, double move Odell touchdown, that works because when they fake, and I'm using my hands on a podcast that you guys can't see, but when <laughs> Baker Mayfield fakes zone right, the entire offensive line moves right with Baker Mayfield. And then, of course, Kareem Hunt flowing that way. It's complete direction right. And that would be – Baker's left defensive end, but the right defensive end, if you're looking at it from the defensive side, the guy lined up against the left tackle, he flows with the play because he has to take care of a cutback lane. Well, what the Colts started doing, they said, screw it. We know you guys aren't handing the ball off here because this is your most deadly pass play. This is your most deadly passing concept. We're not playing the run. We're playing the quarterback. So you saw Justin Houston and, and DeForest Buckner once, and Baker did a good job escaping that Buckner sack, by the way. He, we've got to give him a little credit for his scoots on that one. Jarvis ended up dropping it. But I thought that play was about to be a, a disaster when Buckner just played the run. I mean, that's the second-best interior lineman in football chasing down Baker Mayfield, and he won that foot race. It was impressive. But what I'm trying to say is I expect, and we're going to get into the edge rushers of the Steelers with you, Scott, and these two are going to be so disciplined on that edge, and I would not be surprised if they dare the Browns to run that ball rather than boot it because the Browns are proven they're much more deadly when Baker keeps that boot. And now if you're running a double move on the outside with Odell on a, a, a QB keeper going left and they just play Baker, he's not going to have time to throw the double move even if it's wide open. So that is something I'm really interested to see the wrinkles Kevin Stefanski makes because he's got to know this. He, he watches the tape just like we do. He has to know that teams are playing the run. The one thing that it could then cause damage for the Pittsburgh Steelers, the counter to this, and then I'll, I'll let you guys way back in. The counter to this is just actually handing the ball off, and then there's a huge cutback lane for Kareem Hunt or, or Dearness Johnson because when that defensive end is as wide as the quarterback on the – the keeper, just imagine how wide they are. And now you have a huge cutback lane, zone right, cutback left, and that's how you gouge them and force them to play more discipline. But if they don't hit that cutback and the Steelers can just play Baker on the on the perimeter, Baker's going to have to be a better pocket passer this week. Scott, as, as we talk about all this, do you have faith, Scott, that Baker Mayfield and Kevin Stefanski will figure out whatever a defensive adjustment the Steelers make to them on Sunday? Will Baker and Kevin have the right adjustment back, Scott? Or does this feel more like, man, there might be, this is the plan out there to slow down this passing game, and I'm not sure that 
that the Browns will be able to figure it out. I'm still up in the air. I, I know that Kevin Stefanski will have a plan and, you know, whether or not Baker Mayfield and, and the people on the field can execute, it's another story, but they will have a plan. I think, and, and I'll get into this on the second half of the podcast. This is reminding me a lot of what the Browns are going up against in the first game against the, the Ravens, largely because of the amount of time that the Steelers blitz very similar to the Ravens. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if we see some similar things. It didn't really work out great for the Browns in that game. So I don't see them coming into this game with the same plan, but, but now they have that experience. So you build off that and you, and you make adjustments. And I mean, they're a better team now than they were in week one, obviously. And I don't, I think this probably ties into both of these topics here, but tell me again, if I'm wrong, is it one of the things sometimes if a team's going to play a lot of man on you, and you have defenders who are turning and running with receivers and you get a pass rush, that's when the quarterback has a chance to step up and run because there aren't defenders waiting for him. And I do think there are times – it happens a lot more in college, I think. And I'm just sitting here trying to think of the game in my head. But I'm trying to think, is it an NFL game or a college game I get just watched? You guys have all watched the games where it feels like the quarterback wants the team to rush him. It's like, right. come rush me. Yeah. I, I'm not going to be able to throw, and I'm just going to take off. But that's our plan. We called routes, but actually it's second and six. And my plan is escape the rush and run for 11 yards. Baker is not the world's greatest runner, but Ellis is that part of the pushback on this. If they start playing more man and some of those throws aren't there, you got to hit some of the deep balls, but you also have to make, especially against a pass rush, make them pay and get out of the pocket and run for some first downs. Yeah, Doug, I'm glad you brought that up. Watching the Steelers, the Eagles tape, I was really surprised with the lack of eyes on Carson Wentz. I mean, I'm from their slot corner to all the way to Joe Hayden. They were not, they did not care where Carson Wentz was going to be. And, you know, not every snap, but I'm just saying when it came to that man coverage, those third downs, and you know, you can't get beat. They were much more concerned about getting beat by their man than what the quarterback was doing. So Baker may have some chances and I don't think they're going to come on the edge again, this defense is going to do a great job setting the edge. He might have to step up and run, you know, through a, through a three hole and, and, you know, behind Treader and, and Batonio and find his gaps that way. And now you're in, in a dangerous place. You know, now you're going to have the help coming in and you're not going to probably get to the sideline to, to get out of bounds. You're going to have to be wise and slide and whatnot. And that's my last point on this Steelers defense and why I just, this game is going to be so interesting. Baker's going to need time to throw. He's had the time to throw. But there's going to be moments, and Scott's going to get into this too, he alluded to it. There's going to be moments where it doesn't matter how good the offensive line blocks because Pittsburgh's just going to blitz you. And they're not going to have – the Browns will not have enough guys to stop that blitz. It's just a simple numbers game. Um, last week, Carson Wentz was rocked 11 times. The most Baker's been hit all year was six, and that was versus the Ravens, which there's, there's a correlation there. That's the reason why Scott brought it up. But, hey, I've got to watch the tape. We've kind of already established we throw that Ravens game out, right? We throw it out. So he's really – the next most he's been hit is four times versus Washington, and then the Colts hit him three times. And those are two defenses that blitz less. less. We said last week on got to watch the tape that the Colts are on uh, pace to blitz the second least amount under 100, which would have put them 31st in 2019. So he's facing a completely different defense this week that is just as fierce up front but not afraid to blitz him. So he's going to have to get rid of the ball, take these hits, and he's already has some ribs that are banged up. This is just – I will be so impressed with Baker Mayfield if he comes out and has a professional football game here because this is going to be his most challenging task yet with this Kevin Stefanski offense. And it's one of those, again, I'm, I'm wondering if a week from now we'll be saying things like, ah, throw out the Steelers tape. 
just like we threw out the Ravens game, right? That, which I think is very reasonable because, I, again, you don't have to beat the Ravens and the Steelers. I think if you can go one and three against the Ravens and the Steelers total, I think that's fine. And you don't have to do that to make the playoffs, I don't think. Right. I think there's a – now, it's one of those things. Once you get in the playoffs, it's only Ravens and Steelers. So then it's like, okay, remember those games we threw out? Now they're playing a team like that and they're trying to beat them. But again, this is a step-by-step process. Let's get, let's see them get to the playoffs first and then we can worry about what are they going to do to win a playoff game? I'm very curious. It feels like to me that this is a moment and I don't mean to, I think maybe I feel like I'm making excuses. I'm trying to be realistic to me. If Baker and the offense look terrible on Sunday, I don't think it means that Baker and the offense are terrible. I think if Baker and the offense look good, against the Steelers, then it's like, okay, they might be onto something. But if it's bad, you know what? Teams look bad against good defenses sometimes. But I do think, Ellis, what you're saying is, man, if they show you something, this defense is so good, they have enough pass rushers, the scheme is good, this is a big ask for Baker. And if he can live up to it, and he isn't just done in by the Steelers doing all game what the Colts did in the second half, then Baker Mayfield will have shown you something, Ellis. That's exactly it, because he's facing two completely different defenses, despite them both being top three defenses. I just said it. The Colts aren't going to blitz you. The Steelers will blitz you. And now he has a disadvantage of the Colts tape being available to the Steelers and seeing how they can eliminate your bootleg game. So if Kevin Stefanski levels up here and finds a way to still get his bootleg game going, despite the tape showing that the Colts could stop in the second half, and if Baker can get his in-pocket passing game up against a team like this that's going to blitz him both coach and quarterback had leveled up we need to see and that's why they play the game we could have new information come tuesday it's a fascinating matchup doug all right a lot of these things what what you're talking about ellis is connected to what scott's going to talk about next it's trying to protect baker it's what this pittsburgh defense is going to bring uh from a pressure standpoint it is super interesting and i i really like the idea we know that you know what? The, the Browns defense isn't perfect, right? So we are always going to talk about the Browns defense at times, but I'm glad here on this Friday going into this game, it feels like to me, if the Browns are going to win this, they're going to have to find a way to move the ball on this Pittsburgh defense. Cause I just, I don't think they're going to shut down big Ben and chase Claypool and Juju Smith Schuster and James Connor and everybody on this Pittsburgh offense. So we're going offense heavy with the Browns, Thanks to Ellis for that deep dive. Scott Patsko up next, diving into protecting Baker Mayfield on Gotta Watch the Tape. All right, back on Gotta Watch the Tape. Ellis broke it down for us. Scott Patsko, you are up. Dive in. All right, so last season, the Browns had trouble at tackle, and we all know that. Um, Meg Robinson, over two years, not good. Chris Hubbard's performance actually was worse, though. I think a lot of people – you know, Greg Robinson is left tackle, and we think about that. But Chris Hubbard gave up 80 pressures over the last two seasons and 12 sacks. Uh, we're not going to get into this, but he's actually worse in the run game. Um, can, can, I, can I say, I was one, I did think Chris Hubbard was worse than Greg Robinson last well, good. year. Well, good. I, I would like to say, uh, and I said, Chris Hubbard, swing guy who fills in, great. Chris Hubbard, right tackle, making a decent amount of money as a starter, not good. Not a winning team. Continue. <laughs> that, that's very correct. So anyways, uh, enter uh, Jack Conklin, the biggest right tackle free agent prize this offseason. And then, of course, they, they draft Jedrick Wills. Um, but uh, first year, I want to really focus on Conklin because he's going to be matched up with T.J. Watt. Watt has made a case 
along with Miles Garrett, is for Defensive Player of the Year. He's also taken all but four of his pass rushes from the left side. So he's going to be over Conklin pretty much all day. They don't really move Watt around um, like you see Miles Garrett move around on different sides. Um, so it's going to be Conklin versus Watt. And the reason – here's, I guess, some, some reasons why this is a huge matchup. ESPN Analytics has this new metric uh, that they came up with that measures performance – in the trenches, and it basically measures the rate at which a pass rusher can beat his block in two and a half seconds. And then on the other side, it's the rate at which a lineman can keep that block for two and a half seconds. And the, the result is they call it win rate percentage. T.J. Watt leads the NFL uh, among edge defenders in that stat, 30.4% win rate. Garrett's actually seven. Uh, Jack Conklin leads NFL tackles in pass block win rate, 98%. Uh, Wills is actually ninth at 94%. So both sides of the, of the Browns line are, are doing well uh, against the pass. Uh, we talked last week about, you know, how the, the Browns offense and the Colts defense were like strength against strength, but it, it's similar this week, but really with Conklin and Watt is that's really strength against strength. I think Conklin is sixth in PFF pass blocking grade among tackles. Watt is fourth uh, in pass rush grade among edge defenders. He's first overall in defensive grade uh, among edge defenders. So, uh, Miles actually is first in pass rush grade, and I feel like I should mention him when we're going through this so people can kind of get an understanding of, of how Watt compares to how the, the way Garrett's playing this year. I mean, if you've been a Browns fan for the last couple of years, you know about Watt, but um, he's really having a comparable season to, to Miles Garrett. He has 23 pressures, four sacks, eight QB hits, and then Conklin just doesn't allow that stuff to happen. Four pressures, one sack, one hit. It's worth mentioning this is just going to be the second time Conklin has played the Steelers. The last time it was in 2017. Watt was a rookie back then. And at that point, he pretty much played exclusively on the right side. So Conklin really didn't match up with him. He, he, he saw a lot of Bud Dupree that game. And uh, Bud Dupree had one pressure. Conklin gave up three pressures, one sack. So that's pretty much his experience uh, against the Steelers. But anyways, if that's not enough hype for you, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, <laughs> that pretty is- much – the marquee matchup, I think, as far as uh, the Browns' offense and, and Steelers' defense goes. And, and I will say, what was the game that Conklin missed this year? He missed against – he didn't Bengals. play against Bengals. Bengals. Yeah. And I don't know what the grades show. I felt like in that Bengals game, again, to Chris Hubbard, I thought Chris, like Chris Hubbard played, like, fine. It didn't feel like in that game, like, oh, oh yeah. my God, where is Jack Conklin? You know, which, again, the way my mind works is, like, Oh, well, look, yeah, I thought Chris Hubbard sucked last year. Now Jack Conklin can't play, and Chris Hubbard fills in, and he's just fine. They overpaid Jack Conklin because I'm a stupid idiot. <laughs> well, but- Con- Conklin's, Conklin's six, like I said. Hubbard is seventh in pass block grade among tackles, and he only, he's only got like 120 uh, snaps, but, but his grade is right there. So, yeah, but he did do well in his limited availability. In the, in the Doug wants to puke index – if Chris Hubbard was getting ready to block TJ Watt every snap to protect Baker Mayfield, I would feel like as a Browns, if I was a Browns fan, I would want to puke. And I don't think people should feel that for Jack Conklin. This is, I think you maybe even said this, Scott, like this is why they signed Jack Conklin. You don't sign a guy to whatever gigantic contract he got for like two games a year, but this is but they but they did. So I mean, like this if TJ if Jack Conklin is your TJ Watt stopper, I mean I don't you can't put a number on that. Like that's how big a deal because and it goes back to sort of I mean what we're talking about with Ellis. Does not Baker have as much time to throw as almost anybody in the league right now? That I like Baker, again, we feel like Baker is making progress. I'm not sure our, what kind of what it would do to Baker's progress to be like, oh, your time to pass is cut in half because TJ Watt is in your grill 
every other snap. Well, yeah, and plus more and more edge rushers, more prominent ones are coming from, from the left side now. And, you know, right tackle used to be, you know, left tackle was you had to have a great left tackle and right tackle was the other guy. And now left tackles obviously are still getting paid, but it's, it's definitely they're finding more balance there because right tackle has become a much more marquee position. You got guys like TJ Watt on the outside. Miles Garrett obviously has, has made a big transition to get a lot more snaps on, on the left this year. So, so yeah, I mean, right tackle is just as important as left tackle now. And Ellis, just because you dove into Baker so much this week, like how, how important is pass protection for a quarterback? <laughs> I mean, not to make, but way overrated. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, ah, I mean, it's okay. You just throw it with guys around your ankles. No big deal. Does Baker absolutely need time to throw for the Browns to win this game? Ellis. Right. Before I get to that, Doug, I want to uh, get my chance at a Chris Hubbard, Greg Robinson view here. And, you know, you guys both got to pick your guy. I mean, no one, no one asked Ellis how he feels about the two tackles from last year. Chris Hubbard is a far better football player than Greg Robinson for the sole reason that Greg Robinson might still be in a Mexican jail somewhere for the offseason that he had. And Chris Hubbard is got restructured and gets raving reviews from his current head coach. In the locker room, everyone knew Greg Robinson is a lazy guy. And you take shortcuts, and that's what happens to you in life. Chris Hubbard is about his business. Doesn't have the physical gifts, but I'll take that guy on my team every single time. So just had to throw that Greg Robinson stuff out there because I can't stand when people waste their talent like that. But that's a whole other you know, conversation. You know, I just, I just knew you were going to throw the whole Mexican weed thing back in my face, Ellis. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. Oh, great. Chris Hubbard didn't get arrested. I guess he's a better player. I sometimes know. It's that, hey, sometimes it's that simple, right? I'll, and <laughs> Chris Hubbard also did not get ejected for like karate kicking a guy in the middle of a play. So yeah. Yeah, a hey, since, since we're, since we're comparing uh, uh, talking about Greg Robinson, one, one thing about him, I want to point out last year when the Browns played the Steelers first game, Greg Robinson going against Bud Dupree, Bud Dupree, zero pressures and 33 pass rush snaps. The second game, Robinson had a concussion, did not play. Justin McCray started at left tackle, Bud Dupree, Bud Dupree had seven pressures, two sacks in that second game. So, Greg Robinson is definitely better than Justin McCray. I think that's been proven. Uh, Watt, <laughs> Watt was pretty much – Watt was the same guy. He had six pressures in the first game, seven in the second game going against Hubbard. So make of that what you will. That's my, that's my one uh, uh, positive thing to say about, about Greg Robinson. To that, to that I say this, a dead clock's right twice a day. Doesn't <laughs> mean I want to buy one. <laughs> you can, you'll get a few good ones out of Greg, but that's about it. All right. It does not mean I would want to buy weed from that dead clock. Um, okay. All right. So do, why Baker needs pass protection versus uh, Steelers defense? It is simply for – and it ties exactly into what I talked about in the first segment about the type of game Baker Mayfield's going to have to have for this Browns offense to move the ball, and it's going to come from within the pocket. Unless Kevin Spansky levels up and becomes another – level of offensive wizard, which he very possibly could. We're only five games into his NFL head coaching career. But if they start eliminating the bootlegs and start making you play left-handed, making the Browns play left-handed where they aren't, their strengths aren't available to them, then it's going to come down to Baker Mayfield standing in that pocket and letting it rip against man coverage. You can't do that with suspect tackles and elite edge rushers like TJ Watt and Bud Dupree. So Scott, it feels like, I mean, I think you are making a very good point to Browns fans that, T.J. Watt is like Miles Garrett. Not that that's a revelation, but it is a good reminder because everybody believes in Cleveland and around the NFL that Miles Garrett is playing as well as any defensive player in the league right now, and T.J. Watt's right there with him. 
earlier this week on this podcast, you we talked a lot about how the guy opposite Miles Garrett at defensive end is I don't know. Pittsburgh has a guy opposite TJ Watt at the other defensive end, which feels like that is is that one of the primary differences in this game that they have two edge rusher guys that can use to get after you. Um, yes and no. Bud Dupree is not. I, I kind of want to call him like the Olivier Vernon of uh, of of outside linebackers in in a three four defense like this. Bud Dupree. Um, does not get to the quarterback at the rate that T.J. Watt does. Um, he is not somebody who he, – he's basically like – he's a lot like watching Olivier Vernon, where I think last, on the last podcast you mentioned how it was kind of the same thing over and over. But Dupree isn't someone who's going to throw a bunch of moves at you. He's going to take advantage of, of opportunities. Do not try to block him with a tight end. Uh, we saw that against uh, – or I saw that against the Giants. They tried to do that multiple times, and it uh, just had disastrous results. But he's somebody who – I think benefits from the Steelers uh, type of play. And, and that is blitzing. They blitz 48% of the time, almost 49% of the time they leave the NFL and you're going to see a situation where they're going to have your, your three, your three linemen, you got Watt and Dupree on the outside. So you got five guys there on the line and then you have a linebacker or a cornerback kind of sneaking in into the gaps and being around the, uh, around the, the line of scrimmage and trying to figure out who's coming who's dropping into coverage is the chore and they're really excelling in, in finding those gaps. Even if you keep somebody in like a running back to, to block to try to pick up the double teams, then they're, they're kind of holding off on the rush and then they'll find out where that double team is. And that's when the guy will come kind of on a delayed, on a delayed blitz. The Steelers have, what is it? I think it's uh, yeah, it's Mike Hilton and Vince Williams linebacker and cornerback. They've combined for 11 pressures, five sacks this season. So the, the chore here is, is trying to figure out where it's coming from. And while you're kind of locked in on the outside, you got Stephen Tuitt in the middle, who actually leads the Steelers in pressures this year with 25. He's got four sacks. He's tied with Watt and Dupree. So you're flushing people forward, and, and, and the middle of the defensive line is getting them. A good example of this was against the Eagles last week. The, uh, the rush kind of came up through the middle. They blitzed. They had a linebacker and a cornerback, and Carson Wentz, was just flushed to Watt's side. Watt got him by the ankles. Uh, against the Broncos, Drew Locke tried to keep a running back in to double Watt, and Devin Bush just kind of sees that happening and basically has a clear path to Locke and nails him, and it's an incomplete pass. Um, so these are things that the Steelers are doing, and it's not something we're keeping extra people in against them has worked, at least not for the Giants, not for the Broncos, not for the Eagles. And we saw that all three of those teams kind of try to do that. So the dilemma is you have good edge rushers, you have a lot of blitzing, and both those things just kind of feed off each other for the Steelers. So, so Watts winning, Watts so dangerous based on his own skill, not because necessarily he has a, an edge guy on the other side that they're worried about, but just that their looks are so multifaceted. You don't know where the pressure's coming from half the time. And then as you're trying to figure that out, TJ Watts beating his guy. Right, right. It's, you know, you, you, have, you have a big chore or a big ask for your right tackle and your left tackle to begin with. And then you also have a linebacker or, or a corner coming outside of Watt creating pressure. And who do you, who do you double? Um, you know, it, it, it makes it very difficult. So for both of you guys, like, is this a smart line? Is this a smart offense to handle this? I mean, they got a rookie at left tackle, but they got a lot of other veterans, you know, Baker's been around a couple of years now. Kevin Stefanski is supposed to be good at this. I mean, they've got to have a plan. I mean, they know this is what the Steelers do. Is this a smart offense that can not, you know, not 
not completely combat this, but figure out a plan to move the ball. I was going to say this is definitely the best offense they've faced. I mean, the Broncos and the gosh, who else? The Broncos and the Eagles, I think, have the two worst basically the two worst lines in, in the NFL as far as pass protection goes. The Texans are probably the best team they faced in that regard. You know, T.J. Watt is not rushing against uh, a who's who of, of, of right tackles this season. Um, his, best, his best competition was Lane Johnson, who is 11th, I think, in PFF grade. The other guys are like 56th, 74th, 73rd. You know, your Cameron Flemings, Elijah Wilkinson, Titus Howard of the Texans, not having great seasons. So, this is going to be the biggest touch for the Steelers, too, even though it's the biggest touch for the Browns. But this is clearly the best offense they've had to deal with. So, you know, we're going to find out who's the real deal. Is it, you know, the Steelers' pass rush or is it the Browns' pass protection? Yeah, and to push that further, with the Steelers, they are susceptible to some big plays. Miles Sanders had a 72-yard rush last week. Uh, their corners from Mike Hilton to Hayden – and then there's a third one in there that gets some time too. Um, point is, neither are graded above uh, 60 on PFF. Uh, and that is a testament to the moments when they're blitzing like that. You really put your corners at a disadvantage if the blitz doesn't get there. And now they're one-on-one and a deep curl can be given up. So those two points I'm trying to make are first, there are, are going to be chances in the run game to pop some big plays. And then there's going to be chances when you're facing a, a zero coverage, all-out blitz type of situation where if Odell runs a corner and just beats his man, well, there's not going to be anyone to, to, to tackle Odell after that. So the Browns are going to need some big plays from this offense when at times you know there's going to be baked in negative plays. Baker's going to get sacked a handful of times this week. You know, Kareem Hunt's going to have negative yards rushing a few carries, but you have to make up for those with some explosive plays because Pittsburgh has allowed those, and that's the, the Browns offense that we haven't seen a, a enough of yet, the, the big plays. Of course, in Dallas, you have the reverse and the end around and stuff like that. I'm talking traditional drop back, big play here, or Kareem Hunt making something happen, Nick Chubb style downfield for a 60, 70-yard run. So, Scott, what, what is the best plan for this? Is it get the ball out of Baker's hands quickly? Is it take those go for big plays? Is it, is it run the ball on them? How, what is the best way to try to deal with what this defense does? Well, I think what we might see is maybe something similar to what the Browns tried in week one against the Ravens. Cause as I mentioned earlier, the Ravens are second in blitz percentage. Um, so what the Browns did and what you saw a lot of in week one were empty backfields and very little play action. Uh, so, and it wasn't necessarily a bunch of receivers on the field. It was moving, you know, Nick Chubb or cream hunt out wide. It was getting your tight ends out wide and they're kind of just emptying out the box. You're emptying out the middle of the field and, the Steelers and the Ravens are still going to blitz, but at least you're not looking, you're not trying to figure out who's coming in front of you. You're creating space where they're actually leaving somebody open on the outside in order to come. That's something that the Eagles actually tried to do in a way last week. They play 12 personnel uh, more than the Browns, which is two tight ends, two receivers on the field. They actually went away from that. Uh, they actually played 11 personnel 75% of the time against the Steelers. So they tried to get more receivers on the field and they did spread out a lot. But what they did is they kept a running back in the backfield next to Wentz pretty much all game instead of taking that person and, and splitting him out wide and forcing, you know, forcing the Steelers to cover another person. That's something that the Browns did. I think it was in the first half. I charted, I charted the first half and then like the first drive of the Browns against the Ravens. Cause after that it was like 30 to 30 to six and the game plan didn't really matter anymore. But, 
On those possessions, Baker had nine uh, empty backfields against the Steelers. And basically he had a five-man protection. He had five people going out on a route. So he was four of seven for 48 yards. He had a throwaway. He was sacked once. He also had a defensive pass interference. So it was kind of a mixed bag. So I'm not saying that's going to work. I'm saying that's something they've, they've tried against another team that, that blitzed a lot. Um, it's something we could see from them. But I think they'll do it differently than, than what the Eagles tried to do because it clearly didn't work. Once was still stacked like five times and did a bunch. So I want, I want to get both you guys on this then. Scott, you first. You guys have said or we have said that that Baltimore game was almost like the third preseason game, that it was like Kevin Stefanski having a recall. There was no preseason, whatever. And then it felt like they learned a lot about like who they are and who they aren't. And they, the reason we're throwing that game out is because the, the offense in starting in week two looks a lot different than week one. But for this game, Scott, are you saying that there is some stuff they should have specifically learned from Baltimore so that maybe we threw out the Baltimore game in a lot of other ways, but was that valuable learning time? And do you have an expectation that they should handle a defense like this much better because Kevin Stefanski, first of all, it's not his first game call in place. And second of all, he did learn things from that Baltimore game that he will apply against the Steelers. Yeah, I think preparing for, for this week, um, I have more, I guess, an appreciation of, of them actually trying to accomplish things in that first game than I did originally. It seems clear that they, they wanted to try to combat the Ravens by spreading them out and that's why you didn't see a lot of play action. I, I would hope that they're in a better place now and have a better understanding of, of why things worked and why things didn't. I mean, remember, they turned the ball over on the first two uh, drives that game, which would certainly hurt. But if they do it again, I think it's kind of obvious that that's, that's a plan they have. But I, they don't have Nick Chubb this time. You know, we saw that uh, Kareem Hunt was kind of on his own as far as running backs go last week. So that's something to factor into this. But I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if we do see a lot more empty backfield than we have the last few weeks as they've gone on this, this four-game winning streak. Do you feel like that Baltimore game should have been a good learning exercise for this Pittsburgh game, Ellis? I hear what you guys are saying. The only reason it gives me pause is because when it comes to developing a game plan, watching tape, it's the responsible thing to do as a head coach to put your players in a position to win, to learn from previous tape, not do something that will – possibly run you into what the Steelers want you to do. You know, if you just run into the mouth of this defense and try and get on the perimeter with them in boots, perhaps that isn't the best game plan as we're comparing it to Baltimore. But my reason for pause here is that just because you come up with a new game plan doesn't mean you can execute it because it doesn't work to your strengths. So again, if they come out and the Browns are an empty and Baker's taking some quick hits and they're moving the ball quickly, then this is a new version of the Browns that we're going to have to start considering as an arsenal in their offense. Because right now they're a run first zone power counter, and then they want to pass on the perimeter and bootleg you. That's the Browns offense right now. If they are, can that now become a spread team with four or five wide and slowly get you down the field and maybe hit a big one. That's another arsenal to this offense, another layer that makes them even more dynamic. We just haven't seen it yet. So I, I think it's right. I bet they're practicing up on this stuff, but is it going to work? That's why they play the game. I, I have to see it before I can say it's going to happen. I think the bigger, the bigger learning tool is what the Eagles did uh, in really changing the trends that they done, the, you know, through the first few games. It just, they were totally different from what right. you would expect from the Eagles and the Eagles generally play a lot like, like the Browns. So they saw that here's a team that really changed what he was trying to do and it just did not work. So um, I think you learn maybe even more from that. So Scott, 
when we are back on Gotta Watch the Tape next Tuesday, will it be that, yeah, the Browns offense looked pretty good and found a way to move the ball, whether they won or lost, that, yeah, it was a positive Sunday for the Browns offense, or do you think this is going to be a rough Sunday for the Browns offense? I would be surprised if it's a rough Sunday. I don't see them – I mean, this is going to be a tough, a tough Sunday – I don't think I'm going to come away with uh, – I'm not expecting to come away with big questions about whether or not this offense is, quote-unquote, for real against a good opponent. But I think it's going to be – I mean, this is their toughest – this is their toughest task so far, clearly. Yep. Doug, you, you coined the phrase, this is going to be a, the Browns miss Nick Chubb game. And you sure, you could have said that about last week, but the offense of the Colts ended up – they didn't need that much firepower. If the Browns could – have Nick Chubb running and then just spell him with Kareem Hunt and keep that same action going. I think that's enough of a combination where running the ball is going to work eventually, but your drop off from Hunt to the next guy is, is almost not serviceable against the defense as well. So that's one thing we'll be saying. And then I think the second thing, Scott's right. We're not going to be saying it's a disastrous day. It's going to be their toughest day. Can they score three touchdowns versus Pittsburgh? I think they can, but now we're having a defensive conversation and I don't think three scores is going to be enough. All right, two good dives about this Browns offense. We will be back with final thoughts leading into Cleveland versus Pittsburgh on Sunday. You're listening to Gotta Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com. Back on Gotta Watch the Tape, I want to remind you guys, if you have any questions about Medicare, maybe you have one, maybe people in your family have questions about Medicare. It can be complicated to kind of deal with that kind of stuff. Who better to guide you through the complicated Medicare world than Terry Pluto, the world's most trusted man. You can join Terry Pluto for our Medicare Guide webinar on October 22nd at 2 p.m. Mark it on your calendar. Put it in your little calendar on your phone. I still like to write things in a planner. So flip it to October 22nd, 2 p.m. Write this down. The webinar is presented by cleveland.com and Medical Mutual, and it will help simplify the complex process of finding the right Medicare plan for your needs. Terry, together with our experts from Medical Mutual, Western Reserve Area Agency on Aging, and Discount Drug Mart, will guide you through the process and answer your most pressing questions. You can go to our Cleveland.com Facebook channel. You guys are all on Facebook, so just look for Cleveland.com, and you click on the Medicare event for more details and to register. Again, that's October 22nd at 2 p.m. Final thoughts as we head into Brown Steelers on Sunday. Ellis Williams, what you got? I'm fascinated by how Miles Garrett is going to find a way to wreck what would be now his fifth game in a row if he's either able to get a strip sack or create a turnover versus the Steelers. I'm concerned he won't be able to. The Steelers are getting the ball out fast. This is no longer the drop back, big Ben Roethlisberger, Steelers offense, buy some time, shed a tackler, and then throw it deep downfield. That offense is not what the Steelers are doing. They're getting the ball out quick. Chase Claypool, rookie last week, had seven catches, 110 yards, and four touchdowns. So the, we already know the Browns don't have the lateral quickness. They're coaching that up all week. But the goal of getting the ball out quickly is you neutralize pass rushers like Miles Garrett. How does he affect the game when he's not able to get to the quarterback? And if he's not able to, then how do the Browns defend this quick pass game with the Steelers? It's going to be the difference when it comes to the Pittsburgh offense. I'm curious about Browns kick coverage. Mike Prefer this week said they're going to make some changes in personnel. I mean, it's often one of those times it's like, hey, your kick coverage stinks. Is it your fault, coach? because your scheme is bad, or is it the player's fault? And it's often it's like, oh, it's the player's fault. We're putting new players in. So um, I do believe it, though. A lot, again, a lot of times, sometimes you have some injuries, and your second-team guys who are special teamers, suddenly you're playing defense. Now you're playing third-team guys on special teams, or you're playing 
tired guys on special teams. Mac Wilson's one of the guys that Prefer said wants to be in on more special teams this week. So I'm curious to see, A, who some of the personnel adjustments are, and B, do they cover kicks a little better? Because this, if you think this is going to be a close game, and it's a three-and-a-half-point line, I think, I mean, field position could be it. I mean, if you get – if they pop a couple kick returns that set them up on short fields, that could be the difference between winning and losing. they got to get that figured out. Scott Patsko. I'm really concerned about the back of the Browns' defense. Ronnie Harrison, concussion, did not practice uh, on Wednesday and Thursday. And Carl Joseph, still out with a hamstring, has not practiced this week. Um, so it looks like perhaps Sheldrick Redwine is going to get a start in the secondary he had his first snaps of the season last week and obviously came up with a big interception. Uh, I think maybe one thing that Browns fans can, can put some hope in is that Redwine actually played pretty well against the Steelers uh, last year, especially in the second game. So he only started five games, and those were two of them. Actually, the second Pittsburgh game is, was, uh, was his first start. The back of the secondary has been an issue all season, and now they're dealing with injuries there. Um, and the two guys, or Ronnie Harrison, one guy who had actually played well in limited, you know, limited action is – probably going to be out this week. So it's not good against uh, uh, Ben Roethlisberger, who I think has 10 touchdowns, one interception this season. He's playing well. Jumping off Scott very quickly, Bill Barnwell from ESPN, I always love columns like this, ran through like, hey, here's 14 trades I would make in the NFL. And the trade that he had involving the Browns was trade David and Joku for a safety. I think he had him to San Francisco. I don't know who the guy was. Would you guys be interested in that? Is there something, I mean, and Joku might be, might be the obvious one because you got two other tight ends, or is there something else? Would you try to make a move specifically for a safety if you were the Browns before the trade deadline, Scott? I mean, people have been proposing that since the, the minute Grant Delpit went down. I think uh, that's been the popular thinking is that you, you move Nijoku, who earlier this year wanted out for, for a safety where you clearly need help. So, I mean, Harrison Bryant, I think, is, is, has gotten to a level where – where you could say that Nujoku is, is movable. So, yeah, I mean, if you can get somebody in here who, who can play consistently in the back of the defense, the Browns could certainly use that, and I think they could get by with, with Bryant and, and Hooper. You, you have a surplus at a position until you don't, and three sounds big, and then two sounds like the, the minimum. With how much Kevin Stefanski needs and trusts his tight ends as the focal point of this offense, I don't see him parting ways. Uh, keeping that room with three guys he completely trusts, I think, gives him a security and a, a focal point of this offense that he knows no matter what happens to either his quarterback or his running backs being banged up, he's got trust within that tight end and offensive line group as a whole. So if they get healthy, if Joseph and Harrison get healthy, and you assume they will at some point, if your four safety options are Sandejo, Joseph, Harrison, and Redwine, and you're playing two of those guys on the field most of the time. Is that good enough, Scott? Like, is that will will that get them through and allow the you know that the safety position to not ruin the season? Depends on which two we're talking about, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, uh, Harrison and Joseph maybe maybe works. I, look, if, if you can keep guy if you can keep guys out there healthy, then yeah, you can get by with that. I, the Browns. Last year played three safeties most of the time. It seems like that's kind of out of the cards this year. So, so I think maybe you can get by with two. Yeah, and, and, and this team is going to build this defense through the draft. I, it is so obvious they had huge plans for Grant Delpit. I hope Browns fans were watching last week and noticed a, a Justin Blackman for the, the Colts, a third rounder out of, I believe, Utah. Just played real good around the line of scrimmage, could make pass breakups in the intermediates. That's the type of player they want Grant Delpit to be. I'm sure he will – 
mature into that. And then they're just going to keep shooting for players like that in the draft. You need versatility. You need players that can play all three downs. I don't see this as a, a trade now because of our current situation. They're thinking two, three years down the line, not right now with this defense. Maybe that's something we could do on a, on a – I don't even know when the deadline is. You guys I think three weeks. Know. I think it's like only two or three weeks away. It's coming up. Maybe we could have each of you guys maybe propose a trade or two that, that you would be interested in because people always like fake trades. Bill Simmons made his whole career on fake trades. I mean, that fake <laughs> trades, that's the, kind of, that's the kind of thing that a guy like me could come up with. It's like, oh, what if you traded uh, Nick Chubb gets healthy, you trade Kareem Hunt for Russell Wilson. See, there you go. Now we're, now we're talking. Now we have a Baker, Case Keenum, and Russell Wilson quarterback room. Woo. Yeah. Yeah. See, I mean, that's, a, that's kind of headline. I think the good we, old – the good old days of the Cavs, uh, LeBron's first tour here when the, everybody wanted to trade away all the, the crap on the bench for, for these uh, all-stars. Yeah. I love those days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Trade six backups for Bobby Wagner. Solve the linebacker problems. Um, all right. Great. Got to watch the tape. Appreciate you guys listening. Again, we're in the Orange and Brown Talk feed. Make sure you're subscribed so you get all five Orange and Brown Talks every day of the week, and then Tuesday and Friday, got to watch the tape. So for Ellis Williams and Scott Patsko, I'm Doug Maurice. Thanks for diving in on Got to Watch the Tape.